Well, good morning. Welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us this morning. Uh, welcome to those of you joining us online as well. Uh, one of the new books I want to highlight uh, this morning that's in the library is uh, Believer's Baptism, A Sign of the New Covenant in Christ uh, by Thomas Schreiner and Sean D. Wright. So if you ever want to know why Believer's Baptism over Infant Baptism, this is a good starting point. He does a good job of presenting not just only the view of Believer's Baptism, but also the view of Infant Baptism. There's a lot of quotes, there's a lot of references pointing you to the Infant Baptism um, argument. Uh, so he does a, a respectable job of engaging the argument, equipping uh, the reader in how to navigate the uh, various issues and nuances between uh, the debate uh, or in the debate between Believer's Baptism and Infant Baptism. Again, that's Believer's Baptism. Um, it's in the library. Also, that other book that I recommended, um, it is back in the library if you're waiting to check it out, uh, the book on holiness. It has been returned uh, for a time, so you can uh, check that out if you're waiting for it. Uh, before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity for us to gather. We thank you that we can do so, that we can sing praises of your glory, of your majesty, of your love and grace. We ask that you would encourage us this morning, that you would cause our weary souls to receive new life, to receive that new energy that we need, that strength, that boldness, to live faithfully, uh, to strive for that holiness that you call us to have and to love others, Father. Father, we ask that we would hear your voice this morning, that we would pay attention to it, that we won't be distracted, that we won't allow the cares or the pleasures of this life to keep us from hearing what we need to hear, nor that we would allow the weariness of this life to keep us from hearing what you would have us to hear this morning so that we would be edified and equipped and sanctified. We ask this, Father, so that we would be glorified by the power of the Spirit and that we would glorify you in all that we do. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you know why Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant of our salvation? On what grounds does Jesus mediate? Do you know the purpose of his mediation? Furthermore, do you know the only way that sin is forgiven by God? Our passage, Hebrews 9:15 through 22, gives us the answers to these questions as it describes for us the way of salvation that is made possible by God. So if you have not already, please go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. The main point of this passage for us this morning it is found in verse 15, and again, I would ask that you keep your Bibles open there, because we will be referencing verse 15 uh, throughout uh, the uh, message this morning, even after we, we leave it. The main point of verse 15 is that those who have been called, they can receive the promised eternal inheritance by the mediator, Jesus Christ. And they can receive it by him, for he has secured it, and he has made it available to them, for by his death, their transgressions, their sins, their offenses, 
they are forgiven. We're going to read this passage this morning in its entirety. Then we'll consider what the author means when he speaks of the eternal inheritance, as well as those who are called, followed by identifying the way that the, that the promised eternal inheritance is received. And then we'll look at the basis, the reasoning as to why Jesus is that way. So let's go ahead and read Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So as mentioned before, verse 15 captures the author's main point with the remaining verses expounding his reasoning. And of course, verse 15 is a result of what we talked about last week in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 9, which there the author spoke about how ineffective the old covenant system was, how it was unable to purify our consciences. But the new covenant, by the priestly work of Christ, the new covenant is wholly effective not only by securing our eternal redemption, as verse 12 points out, but also in purifying our consciences, verse 14, so that we may serve the living God. Therefore, we arrive at our passage today in verse 15, where Christ, he, is the mediator of a new covenant. That is, Christ is the way. He is the means of salvation, since it is by his blood that our eternal redemption has been secured. But why is Christ the mediator? To, to what end is he? Why? What's the reason? What's the purpose? What, what is the result of his mediation? We'll look at the middle of verse 15. So that. Right here, this so that. This is a, in the Greek, it's an adverb here that indicates purpose. This is the purpose of his mediation. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, what is this eternal inheritance? Well, it's the promise of Abraham. Think of Hebrews 6, 17, where the author earlier says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and he's speaking of the promise that was made to Abraham. And to say to the heirs is to say that they are inheriting. You can't be an heir unless you are inheriting something. And in this case, they are inheriting the promise. And that's the promise of Abraham. And the whole letter of Hebrews is written to show how we and how they may receive this inheritance, this promise that has been given to them. Consider what the author says in Hebrews 10.36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In other words, I am writing this to you so that you will endure, so that you will receive what is promised in accordance to the will of God. 
And if you remember, the promise to Abraham was about the promised land, which brought about with it the promised rest and the promised prosperity. And later in Hebrews 11.10, the author explicitly connects the promise of Abraham to the celestial city with no foundations of which Abraham was anticipating. And speaking of Abraham, as he begins the, the chapter on the great hall of faith, he says, For Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And early he talks about the promise that as to why Abraham left his land, because he's looking forward to this inheritance. But again, to whom is this promise for? We'll look at verse 15. Those who are called. Now, this is not election language here, as in you can't translate this verse like those who are chosen, those who are elect. That's not the, that's not the Greek that's used here. The word called here speaks to those who are summoned, invited, called upon to come. The, the Greek word here is kaleo. And we can find a parable in the Gospels where Jesus uses this word often. Think of the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. In verses 2 and 3 and 9, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, sent his servants to call, to kaleo, those who were invited or kaleo to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And so in verse 9, the parable goes on, and Jesus says, Go therefore to the main roads and kaleo to the wedding feast, as many as you find. Call, invite, summon. And that's what God has done. He has invited, He has called, He has summoned people to come and partake of the kingdom, to receive this promised inheritance. But this summons, this invitation, this calling of God, though it is open to many, you just can't nonchalantly accept it. Right? You can't just receive the king's summons and then just go waltzing into the king's hall any way that you like. See, with this invite, there's also directions, instructions. There is a process, there is a, a way of designation that gets one into the king's hall without getting thrown out. We don't want to be like the character at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, ignorant, who shows up at the celestial city. He goes all the way, he makes a long journey, a long, hard journey, all the way to the celestial city, but it's a journey that he chose. It wasn't the path that the king told him to take, it's his own path. He has no certificate to go into the kingdom, into the celestial city. And he was sincere in his intentions. He had heartfelt emotions about the king. He had faith in the king, but yet he arrived at the city in accordance to his own will and not the will of the king. Therefore, ignorance is bound hand and foot and he is cast out of the city. But we don't need to look to Pilgrim's Progress for this illustration. I mean, Bunyan himself used uh, the Bible to get inspiration for this illustration. Better yet, let us consider again the parable that we just referenced, the parable of the wedding feast. Let's read the final verses of the parable in verses 11 through 14 of Matthew 22. Jesus goes on and says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, so they've all arrived, he saw there a man with no, who had no wedding garment. This is ignorance in Pilgrim's Progress. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing teeth, for many are kaleod, many are called, but few are chosen. 
So though God calls us, there is a way in which we are to respond to his calling. There is a way to which we must go if we desire to be received, to be welcomed into the celestial city, or as the, as the author in Hebrews puts it in this passage, if we desire to receive the promised eternal inheritance. And that way is clear. That way is Jesus. Verse 15, he is the mediator. He is the one who arbitrates, who secures, who makes this salvation, this reception of the inheritance possible. No one else does it. No priest, no president, no angel, no one else. There is no other way to enter into, to receive, to arrive at the kingdom. Jesus, he is the narrow way. He is the narrow gate. He is the righteousness that we must clothe ourselves with. He is the righteousness that the man at the end of the parable was not clothed with. He went in there with his own clothes. We need the clothes of Christ. We need his righteousness. Jesus is the wisdom that we must possess if we are to go this way. Otherwise, we will wander. We will stray. He is the word which marks the way for us, that tells us this is the path. Jesus is everything, and without him, the only road we are on is the broad road, the wide road that leads to destruction, the one that is full of many people who are well-intended, who have good morals, who are nice people, who love people, but without Christ, they are on their way to damnation. As Peter stated to the high priests, rulers, and scribes of Jerusalem in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we must not think that there is room for toleration here. God's gracious. He'll tolerate. He'll, he'll, he'll waver. If somebody's well-intended and they mean well, he'll, he'll give them grace. He'll extend that to them. No, he won't. Because there is no salvation by any other name. There's no room for toleration. There's no room for indifference. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You cannot profess faith in Christ and at the same time believe that there are other ways to heaven. You cannot say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but my Muslim brother... He too will be in eternity with me. No, he won't. See, if you do this, you deny Christ. You deny the Jesus that you supposedly profess. Well, I profess him faithfully. It doesn't matter. The Christ that you're professing is a false Christ. It's one of your imagination. It is not the one of Scripture. It's not the one of reality. It's not the one who has been revealed to you. You cannot profess Christ and say that Muslims too are faithful servants of God. You cannot profess Christ and say that Mormons who deny the triune nature of God are faithful servants of Christ. Or if anyone, as long as they live their life in good faith and they don't cause much harm to others, well, Jesus, God in His grace, He will accept them. You make God out to be a liar when you believe that. Because when Jesus, when God is clear, there's no other way to salvation except by the name of Jesus Christ. And you go on by saying, well, Muslims, Allah, the Mormon way, the Catholic way, this way, that way, you're calling God a liar. There is no other way. There is no other name 
And this is what will get you killed in the world today. It's not simple belief in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus all you want. People love the Jesus that loves everyone, right? That tolerates everyone. Everyone loves that. But when you start saying, when you start preaching, when you start believing in the exclusivity of Christ, and you start saying he is the only way, all other ways lead to damnation, that is what kills you. That is what offends. Even some of you now, you're uncomfortable with this language. But this is the truth. This is what got Jesus crucified. This is what got the apostles martyred. This is what gets our brothers and sisters across the world this very day why they die. You can believe in Christ, but the moment you come baptized, you identify with him, you say, he's the only way, your way leads to hell, off with your head. People hate that. They will spit on you. How dare you say such a thing? It's so prideful, so arrogant. It's true. And it's the most loving thing that we can share with people when we tell them, when we point out their blindness. Jesus is the only way. Without believing in the exclusivity of Christ, you cannot enter into the kingdom. God will not share his glory with any other name in all of creation. So if we, are, if we who are called are to receive the promised eternal inheritance, then we must ensure we take the narrow road that leads to it. Therefore, we must be sure that we obtain it through our mediator, Jesus Christ. But why is this so? Why must it be through Jesus? Why must he be the mediator? And this is important for us to understand. Otherwise, we will be led astray. When people challenge why we believe, when we feel the heat of persecution, when people reject that view, we're going to want to know why this is the way. See, every other religion and faith, every other means for people to achieve whatever they're trying to achieve beyond this life is one of works. It is one of morality paths that are traveled by one's own effort to get to their respective gods, their respective goals. But the way of Christ is different and it's unique, and it's because of what it is based on. See, the way of Christ is a path that he himself has made for us to travel. God has entered in, he has intervened, he has made the way. More than that, he has even provided the power, the effort that is necessary for us to walk this path to him. And he does this not in secret, as if you need some Gnostic knowledge, some secret key to understand this way, as if he's kept it hidden, and only certain people know it. He has made it plain. He has given it publicly. He has shown it by the cross and by his word. He has shown it by the blood and death of Christ. In fact, this is how the way is marked. It's marked by the blood and death of Christ. But again, why is that? Why is this way marked by the blood and death of Christ? Why is this necessary? Well, let us consider the argument that the author puts forth in verses 16 through 22. The author mentions the basis of the mediation of Christ at the end of verse 15, when he mentions that the the death of Christ redeems those who are called uh, from the transgressions of the first covenants, that by the death of Christ they are forgiven. He then goes on in verses 16 and 17, and he gives us an analogy of how a will works. Or depending on how you want to translate this, because the word for will here is also covenant and testament, and there's quite a debate as to how it should be translated. Uh, But the point remains, because this is an analogy. And the point of the analogy is that death was necessary for the benefits, the the rights, uh, the inheritance of the new covenant to to be passed on to the heirs. 
And we know that's the point because, again, the context, right? Context is informative. As we read on in verse 18 and further, the author explains his point. He says, by how even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. In other words, was not inaugurated without death. And then in verse 19, he summarizes Exodus 24, verses 1 through 7. Exodus 24 is where the people of Israel and God, they ratify, they, they, they affirm the covenant that God has presented to them. Moses has read all the words to them, and the people say, yeah, we agree to this covenant. And then the author explicitly cites verse 8 of Exodus 24 and verse 20, which is where we read of the confirmation, where Moses says this is the blood of the covenant. And in that count, the blood is spilt. The blood that is spilled is not of people, but it is of animals. And the blood was not only sprinkled on the book, that is the law that Moses just read, but it's sprinkled on the people. But also in verse 21, it's sprinkled on the tents, and it's sprinkled on the vessels of the first and second section of which we spoke about last week. And the author concludes his argument in verse 22 by emphasizing his point by saying, even, indeed, also, depending how you want to translate that, even under the law, under the first covenant, almost everything, as Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 and chapter 16 make clear, almost everything was purified with blood. And I appreciate the author's honesty here. He doesn't just blindly say everything is purified by blood because that's not true. Not everything was, right? We have the grain offerings in Leviticus 2, no blood involved there, but almost everything was purified and the point remains. Why was almost everything purified with blood, especially on the Day of Atonement? Because only by the shedding of blood is forgiveness of sins possible. When an, when an animal bleeds, it bleeds for the one who has slain it. And the people of Israel, they knew that in the blood of an animal was its life. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar for a purpose. To make atonement for your sins. To pay the debt. To, to, to settle the offense. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, it's not so much the blood itself that purifies, as if we can just take a donation of blood and purify. It's the life that is given, the death that is suffered, that is represented by the flowing blood. Even in our main passage in verse 15, the author, he, he speaks of forgiveness in verse 15 being connected to death, but then in verse 22, he connects forgiveness to the blood. Because the blood represents the life that is given by death. So when we speak of blood, we're not talking simply just about bleeding. As if I can donate my blood for the purpose of forgiveness of sins. It's about death. It's about a life that has been given, that has been sacrificed for another. And the life and death of the sacrificial offering stands in place of the one who is truly deserving of death. And that's you. The sinner. What a better way to have one feel the weight of their transgressions than by slaying a spotless, unblemished, innocent animal. And not only seeing the animal die, but feeling the animal's life fade away. Especially when you have to do it yourself. You're the one cutting the tissue, the, the, the ligaments, the tendons, the blood vessels. 
You're feeling the warmth of life escape from the body as coldness takes over. You see the eyes roll back. You can smell the death. And you know that every time this happens, when you see it, whether you're doing it yourself or you watch the priest doing it, you're like, my sin has done that. The sins of the people have done it. And you repeat this process over and over again with these beautiful, spotless animals that you are charged to take care of. Our sin is not a small matter that we can just simply sweep under the rug. I know we like to think that, like, well, you know, we're all fallible, we all make mistakes, it's no big, no, it's a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal, blood is necessary to pay for that sin. And praise God, it has been, right, by the blood of Christ, who is our mediator. But again, though, it's not just the blood. It is the death of Christ. It is the suffering of Christ that makes the way. And remember who Christ is. This is part of the author's argument, starting back at the the prologue found in chapter 1. He doesn't start by naming out Jesus. He starts with the Son, right? He doesn't name Jesus until chapter 2. Chapter 1 talks about the Son, right? The Son who has been exalted, the the Son who has uh, made a way, who has created all things, and who is sitting at the right hand of the Most High God. Why? Because of his suffering, because of his death. And his death was necessary so that the Son would be made perfect in order to be the founder, the pioneer, right? This is Hebrews 2.10, the trailblazer of our salvation, so that he can bring many sons to glory. And having been made perfect, Hebrews 5.8.9, Jesus is the source. He is the power of salvation. And it is through his death, Hebrews 7.28, that Jesus was appointed as priest. Because his death has made him perfect. And so he becomes the mediator of the new covenant. None of that happens with no blood. With no bloody suffering. With no bloody death. And consider simply alone in chapter 9 what the author has described in regard to what sacrificial blood provides. Both the blood of the animal and the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.7, the blood provides access. I don't have them on there. Hebrews 9.14, purification. The blood provides purification of the conscience when it's the blood of Christ. In 9.18, the blood of both of animals and of Christ inaugurates the, the covenants. Right? The author cites Exodus 24.8 in speaking of the animal's blood, but he does so fully knowing what Jesus says in Matthew 26.28 on the night that he's betrayed, where he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. For many, for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.19, the blood consecrates the people. 9.21, it cleanses the instruments. 9.22, it purifies most things under the law, and it provides forgiveness of sins. Again, none of this can happen unless blood is spilt. This isn't simply about thinking about the blood, mimicking the blood, pretending something is blood that's not blood. Blood must be spilt. And when blood is not spilt, there is no atonement for sin. There's no forgiveness. There's only forgiveness of sin if the blood is warm. Only if it is flowing afresh from a living and breathing creature who is dying for the sinner. And only with sin forgiven, only when we are atoned, can we receive the promised eternal inheritance. We must have our sins atoned in order to receive it. 
in order to enter into the kingdom, in order for us to receive that certificate that allows us entry into the celestial city, in order for us to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. To think that one can have atonement by means where there is no blood spilt, by definition, biblical definition, that is foolishness. That is heresy because it does not save. You cannot have a bloodless sacrifice for the atonement of sin, such as the Roman Catholics do with their Mass. That is why we consider it to be a damnable practice because it does not save, it cannot save, and it blasphemes the work of our Lord and Savior. Because in order for blood to atone, there must be a death, and Christ has already died. He has already bled. And as the author has pointed out numerous times in in his letter, once for all, he has done it once for all, not to do it again. And when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Not to do it again for you, not to be asked by anyone, can you please offer yourself again for No, because he's already done it. And what he has done is enough. It's enough for those who would believe in him and trust in him and not in other things not in other people or other methods. We need to be careful with this. Many of us, we like to say, I believe in Jesus. So so when Jesus gives us 12 eggs and says, hey, keep these eggs, well, here's a basket I'm giving you. You put them all in this one basket. I'll take care of them for you. But it's the only eggs you get. We like to take 10 of them, put them in Jesus' basket. Then we take two. We're like, well, I'm going to put two in this basket just in case something happens over here. Or maybe because there's something over here I still want. I want to hold on to this but I'll put the other ten in here, and we think you can have both, but you can't. Jesus says you must deny yourself, your whole self, not part of yourself. Everything about you, you must say no to, and you must embrace his way. You can't have one foot in the airplane and one foot in that tunnel ramp that leads to the airplane. Because when it comes to take off, the door is going to cut you in half, or you're going to fall out. Something's going to happen, but you're not going to be on the plane. You either need to be in the plane and trust the pilot and the aircraft, or not on the plane at all. It's the same thing for our salvation. Either we trust wholly and fully in the work of Christ, or we don't. And that's hard for us, right? Especially when we have things that we think are tangible, right? We love tangible things. We like to have our hands. We like to have a checklist. We, we, living by faith is challenging because that's what it is. It's living by faith. I, I hear the word of God. I know what he has done. He has said it is enough. I believe that, but you know what? Sometimes I don't feel that way. Sometimes I wonder, but if I do this, I do that, then I can think, well, I've done this, I've done that, so I'll trust in that, but that's not what we're called to trust in. We need to be careful of the sacraments. It's not just the Catholics that have issues with the sacraments. Their issue is explicit and overt, but many Protestants put too much trust in the sacraments. I mean, some, I mean, we know many neglect them completely, but some trust them too much, whether it's their baptism. I've been baptized. Well, does baptism forgive you for, for your sins? Where, where's the blood in the baptism? Well, I've taken communion. Where was the blood that was spilled? Well, I believe in transubstantiation that the wine changed to blood, did it, though? Did you actually drink blood? Well, it, it, was, it still tasted and smelled like wine, right? Right. So it's, it's wine. And Jesus has already bled. And he's resurrected. He's not bleeding right now. He, he's in a resurrected body. He's not like bleeding in heaven so that people can continue to be forgiven. So if it was blood, I don't know whose blood it was, but it wasn't Christ's. 
you might, you might want to check on that, is that it can't save. The only thing that atones for us is the crucified Christ. And we must not trust in anyone or anything else other than Christ. Now, let us, I, I don't want to miss this. The sacraments have their place. It's why we celebrate it every week, right? Points us to the truth. Points us to the one who has given us forgiveness. It reminds us when we doubt our faith. It reminds us we are forgiven. Having good morals, loving others, being a faithful spouse, a dutiful citizen, a gracious church member, these things do not and cannot save. They do not get you into the kingdom because they do not deal with sin. If you offend someone greatly and you refuse to apologize and do what is necessary to atone for that offense, and you know of this offense, whatever good you do towards that person, it will bear the stink of the offense that you refuse to apologize for. It will be stained with it. It doesn't matter how nice to, to them you are. They're always going to remember, hey, you still have this offense between you and me, and you refuse to deal with it. It's the same with God. No matter what you do, no matter how good you are, your sin must be dealt with. So you need to ask yourself, what are you trusting in? How have you dealt with your sin? Why do you think you will receive the promised eternal inheritance? Do the things that you trust in provide atonement, provide forgiveness? Can they? Where's the blood? You can't work enough for atonement. You can't love enough. You can care for all the orphans, all the widows, and all the world, and all of time. Right? You could be so like a blessing to them. It's not enough. You still need to atone for your sin. You can't suffer enough for your sin. You can't cause enough pain upon yourself. Like, you can't whip yourself, as, as many religions do, which even the Catholics engage in. You can't spill enough of your blood to atone for your sin. You can't die enough times for other people. And, and yes, giving your life, dying for your friends, laying down your life for another person is the greatest gift you can offer. But when you offer it, it's not a salvific gift. When Jesus offers it, it is, but not when you offer it. See, the whole of ourselves, inside and out, from our fingernails and our hair to the depths of our souls, it is blemished, it is spotted, it is sinful, it is unclean. All of it. Thus, it needs to be cleansed. It needs to be purified. It needs to be forgiven. Only by the blood of the Son, namely Jesus, who is spotless and unblemished from his fingernails and hair to the depth of his eternal soul, his divine soul, only he can provide such forgiveness, such cleansing, such purification and atonement. And he does, because it is by his blood that our eternal redemption is secured, and along with it, the eternal inheritance promised to the heirs of Abraham. See, this is good news. This is the rest of Matthew 11. That our atonement, our forgiveness, our salvation, the way to eternal life is found outside of ourselves. It is not rooted in faulty, fallible feelings or morals, but it is rooted in Christ. It is rooted in His blood and death, the work that He has already done. 
whatever way we think we can enter the kingdom, that we can receive the inheritance, whatever way we think that is, that is what will stand before us when we stand between a holy God on judgment day. When we think it's by works or by love, I loved my neighbors, God's going to go look at it, well, okay, you loved your neighbors, but what about your sin? How have you dealt with your sin? Okay, you've done all these other things. You, you were kinder to the orphans than Mother Teresa, but you still have your sin to deal with. You, you, you are the most generous giver out of anyone in all of humanity, in all of history. You are the most gracious to people. But we have this problem with this sin, this debt that hasn't been paid. How are you going to deal with this? You, you can't at that point. See, we don't, if, 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 when we stand there, we want it to be the blood of Christ. And that's how we find rest, because it's like, I got all these mistakes, I may have done some good things, but none of that matters because I have the blood of Christ before me. He speaks for me. It's his blood that atones. And if you doubt this, and at times you will, you live long enough, you do life faithfully enough, you will have your moments of doubt. You will pray, Father, help me, I believe, help, help my unbelief. Jesus, help me with my unbelief. So when you doubt this, confess remember the cross which means confess jesus to be who he says he is and who you are he's the son of god the perfect spotless lamb the creator of all things and you are the son and daughter of adam the transgressor you are a spotted blemished sinner in need of cleansing and forgiveness and by the cross that jesus bled so that his righteousness may replace your unrighteousness that his holiness may cleanse your unholiness you are on the basis of his work. And if you wonder if the blood of Christ is enough, if you wonder, well, did God really accept the sacrifice of Christ? Well, remember the exaltation of the Son. This is the resurrection. This is why the tomb is empty. It's an evidence. It is a sign that what Jesus taught, said, and did, the Father accepted. He accepted the sacrifice. He exalted his Son, and he did so so that all may know but Jesus is who he says he is. Again, this is why we receive communion. It's why we do it every week. Because some weeks are good, other weeks are bad. Sometimes they're stringed together. Sometimes the good week is very hard to find. But every week we come as we gather and we remind ourselves by word, by song of the truth of Christ. We get to taste the truth of Christ. We get to taste the gospel. We are reminded of what he has done for us. Because sometimes we wonder. And we see our brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with us professing the same thing. Communion allows us to point backward, it points us backward, I should say, so that we can look forward to the end and so that we can be encouraged to faithful, holy living. Your feelings don't cut it. Many, many people out there would have you, you just need to believe enough, you just need to have enough faith, you just need to, you can choose to be happy every morning. And you ought to be able to choose that. And if you choose that, well, then the kingdom of happiness is waiting you. But that's not how we get into God's kingdom. You can, you can come here this morning and be in a bout of serious depression. Your marriage can be broken. 
your life, you're just wondering, have I really, is this what my life has come to? I'm such and such age. Life has just be, seems to be a blur. I've made so many mistakes. I have so many regrets. Is this all that there is? I don't even know what waits me. I wonder if God even loves me. It's just one thing after another. And you just take communion and you're like, you know what, I don't feel it, but I know the truth. And so I will pray and I will continue to wait for his return. Your wealth, your job, your contentment, none of that saves. Success, prosperity, and life does not save. Only by his shed blood are we saved, so let us stop trying to find security and sanctuary and other things. If only I get this job. If only if, if I can find that one person in my life to make me whole. Any other way in life, no matter how well intended, Right? Some people, you can find peace in many things. But we're not looking for peace on earth in this age. We're looking for peace on earth in eternity. We want a peace that transcends death, and only Christ can give, that, give us that. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, how affectionate or emotionally motivated you are, any other way that's apart from the name and blood of Jesus Christ is a way that leads to damnation. This is why we preach Christ crucified every day weak. It's why we harp on it, because there is no other way to the kingdom. This is the way, the blood of Christ. This is the way of our mediator, our high priest, our Lord and Savior, who was raised from the dead and sits right now at the right hand of the God Most High, interceding for us. So let us rejoice in that truth, and by God's grace and mercy, May we never forget it. And if we do, may the Lord graciously remind us by his word, by the sacraments, and by our brothers and sisters in him. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your mercy and grace and your patience, your faithfulness. We thank you that we can come to you we can come to you with our lives a mess, we can come to you with our sins before us. We can come to you emotionally unstable. We can come to you in all sorts of ways, Father. But we know that when we do come to you and that when we confess our sins and our, our need for you and we trust in your Son, that by his blood we are reconciled to you. We are forgiven. We are one with you, Father. We thank you for that mercy and grace. And we thank you that even when we confess it and we come here this morning, we rejoice, we profess these things, and we go out from here and we trip. We stumble, we fall. We know that if we continue to confess, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because of Jesus, because of the Son, whom you sent for that very purpose, Father. So, Father, when, when we doubt our salvation, when the devil would have us think that we're unworthy, when when we have sinned too much and the devil would have us think that we can't go back to you, Father, may your spirit continue to embolden us and continue to remind us of your word, of the truth, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and that we who need wisdom, when we seek it, you give it generously without reproach. So, Father, we ask that this morning you speak to each and every one of us. You know where our hearts, our souls are, the state, the condition of them. You know the ones that know you, the ones that don't know you, the ones that want to know you. We ask that you would open the eyes of those who are blind and those who do see, Father, that you would encourage and keep them from the darkness. 
cause the light to burn all the more. Father, also we ask that you would help us to confess our sins and to do so confidently so that we can drink and taste of the grace that you offer. And we ask, Father, in doing so, that you'd bless the elements before us, the cup and the wine, that as we confess our sins, that we can arise as one body and one faith by one baptism. In the name of your Son, that we would take the elements, take them together, and we would be encouraged, being reminded again, it's not based on our works, it's based on the work of Jesus Christ. And it has already been accomplished. He has already bled, and he has risen And we await his return, Father. And until he returns, may you give us the faith, the strength that we need to be faithful, that we will continue to proclaim the truth that there is salvation under no other name but Jesus Christ. But Father, let us not only proclaim that with our words, which we must do, but help us to proclaim it with our lives. Help us to be faithful in how we live. Help us to be holy as you are holy by your great mercy. Father, we thank you for all of these wonderful truths. We thank you for the moment that is before us. We thank you for the week that is ahead, come what may. And may we do it by your grace with you. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.